Hi, I'm Alex Garcia, and thanks for joining us here at NTWC Live. It is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, and I. We'd like to say thank you to a few groups that helped make this possible. It's USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, and the Weather Board. We have, uh, as Tim mentioned, we have uh, Lisa Miller uh, with us today. Uh, Lisa Miller is a disaster insurance and recovery expert, earning a reputation as a tireless consumer advocate. Her firm of Lisa Miller & Associates is based in Tallahassee, Florida, and provides government consulting and advocacy in Florida's legislative and executive branches, business development, public relations, with a percentage of her time devoted to volunteer advocacy helping consumers. Pertinent to what we do in the hurricane world, uh, her hurricane field policy experience uh, uh, started with uh, Hurricane Andrew, and uh, believe it or not, 30 years ago in 1992, and the more recent storms of Hurricane Michael and Hurricane Irma. Uh, previous uh, uh, career move, she was Florida's Deputy Insurance Commissioner and Deputy Chief Financial Officer and led the My Safe Florida Home Program, which is a highly successful uh, effort to get people to strengthen their homes against hurricanes, which is has proven to be a worthy endeavor. Uh, uh, Lisa grew up in Florida and attended Florida State University, and uh, uh, not in meteorology. We're used to talking to meteorologists out of Florida State, but uh, obviously in the business management and public administration. So welcome to our show, Lisa. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with these very distinguished guests. Those of you that follow the weather uh, know it like I know it. Every raindrop matters. So mm -hmm. I kind of want to visit with all of you today that this really isn't about the weather or about the environment. It's about the people that it affects. And I want all of us today to think about in whatever vertical we're in, whether it's the insurance side, the disaster recovery side, you know, the municipal side, it's all about the customers that we serve whether we call them taxpayers, clients, claimants, that's what this is all about, is how we help those to prepare for it before, during, and after. So I hope that's what we can do today and spend some time talking about how to make life better in regards to the weather and disasters. That's great. Uh, uh, maybe a brief description of what you what you and your company uh, 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 do would, would help for uh, getting people on board with uh, where we're going today. Sure, happy to do that. I started... Uh, in uh, insurance regulation in 1988. And of course, Hurricane Andrew hit in 1992. And if you think about what happened during that time, there were no cell phones. I mean, it, it used pay phones. It was all pay phones. Remember, you put a dime in and a quarter, whatever it was at the time. And um, we had an insurance commissioner, Tom Gallagher, at the time, who was from Miami. And he got a call from his sister who said, you have no idea how bad it is down here. You've got to get down here. Because remember, we didn't have instant news. We had to, you know, see photos where people had Polaroid cameras, right? So we he immediately responded, uh, sent teams of us down there to look at insurance policies, to console people. Most important thing we did was console people because it was the biggest shock that they'd ever seen. Fast forward um, in the 04 and 05 storms where we had all those storms hit Florida in the span of two years, over a million claims, billions of dollars in losses. We learned a lot. You know, we went 10 years without a storm which helped the insurance industry, you know, build their surplus, you know, put, put money in the bank basically to be able to, to pay their claims and to um, improve their research and development and to make them stronger. And a lot of people think, oh, they're just rich, greedy insurance companies. Well, if you think about it, 
we want them to have surplus in the bank because that's how they pay our claims. So it's, you know, not a good idea if they don't. Um, and so in 04 and 05, we were very fortunate. We only lost three or four companies, um, one large company out of Tampa, but we had helped that, that 10 year hiatus of no storm really helped build the reserves. Um, you know, from one storm to the next, we really were able to br- help them build the reserves. And the insurance commissioner at the time was Kevin McCarty. And um, I worked with him for many years. Um, I came out of government in the mid 2000s and I've, um, been working with the insurance industry as well as the disaster recovery industry. And if you think about the intersection between the two, I spend my days talking about property insurance on the one hand and efficient disaster recovery and response on the other hand. And people either run toward me or they run the other way. Because when you talk about property insurance, most people, they don't, they don't understand it. They pay a premium. They don't like their insurance company. They got to have it because they've got a mortgage. If you think about what property insurance is and what it's not, it is to be there when your home is damaged. It's not there to replace your roof that's got normal wear and tear. Let's just face it. It's not a warranty policy. It is to have people come to your house when things happen in the property insurance arena and to care about you and your homeowner and your largest asset. Well, then think about disaster recovery. We have... We have federal funds that come in after a storm, and we want them, we want FEMA to, and the other federal agencies to build up their surplus so that they've got, that they have an unlimited checkbook, but that they are able to come help us when the time comes. And it is about making sure that we keep our homes maintained so that those federal agencies don't have to spend as much as, as you know, we feel like they should sometimes to help us get back on our feet. So the intersection between property insurance and federal recovery is a huge bridge and if we work really hard to make our communities and our homes more resilient and stronger it reduces the loss for the property insurance industry which ultimately can reduce our premiums so i spend my days trying to educate policymakers state legislators federal congressional officials local state and county officials that if they would just connect the two and work together to see that when they make their communities more resilient they take advantage of FEMA funding grants, all kinds of resilient grants, it ultimately affects not only their property insurance premiums, but their flood insurance premiums through the NFIP, and it's a win all the way around. So to say that I talk for a living is an understatement, Bill. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> the, uh, I, was, I, I got the impression when I moved over there that the, uh, the uh, My Safe Florida Home Program uh, was developed to kind of uh, uh, foster the idea you were just talking about, about building homes uh, better, preparing the homes better uh, for the, 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 the almost certain to happen sometime down the road, uh, wind disasters for, for uh, one specific thing. Is that, is that pretty much a correct assumption? That's true. That program kicked off in 2005. We had the 04 and 05 storms. And at the time, Governor Jeb Bush, he just wanted, he wanted to, you know, the word was mitigation back then. Now it's resilience. And no one knew what mitigation was. And when I presented in front of the Florida cabinet, as we kicked off the program in 05, I said, I want to make mitigation as cool as Starbucks. He still remembers that quote. Um, and we work very hard to say to people simple things like, you know, a roof strap to pull that roof down on top of the house. You lose your roof, you lose your house. 
you know, a garage door brace, a brace so that the wind doesn't push that garage door in, you know, windows that can withstand the, the hurricane force winds. We, there's seven or eight simple things that you can do to a home or even a commercial structure that makes your properties more resilient. We all know this on this call and for the listeners around the world. It just makes sense to make things stronger before the wind blows. So fast forward in May of this year, Governor DeSantis, um, in his efforts to educate Floridians, kicked off another version of the My Safe Florida Home Program. And it is in the process of ramping up right now. Same idea. You get a home inspection that tells you the strength of your home. Is it a Volkswagen? Is it a Chevrolet? Is it a Cadillac? Uh, do you want to make it a Cadillac? And, and you know, the, the government will give um, a $10,000 grant and you can you need to match half of that um, for certain income levels. And the, the program is easy to find online, the My Safe Florida Home Program. And it's just has not kicked off officially. But every opportunity we get to educate people that when you spend a dollar on resiliency, you've seen the federal statistics, it can save 7 to $8 in agony and repair. And if you invest on the front end, saves you on the back end. The insurance companies listening to this call, they would welcome the opportunity to educate their policyholders, and they do on what they need to do. I just got a brand new uh, metal roof put on my house. Um, the code requires three clips. I put five clips. It may have cost me another $800 or whatever. Just makes so much sense. So, Bill, let's talk. Let's make sure we continue to pound the pavement. What you do on the front end affects you on the back end. Yeah, and the the thing I, the the thing I like about the a program like uh, uh, my safe Florida home was the uh, the incentivize doing this. It get, it gives a little spur of something. Hey, you're going to help me out doing this. That make it people that say I need I need to spend money on other things and not do it. That that might give them the uh, the incentive to go out and, and take on these what seemingly minor mundane tasks that actually may help your household together in a hurricane. We just had this call yesterday with FEMA. One of my roles in my consulting firm is I have the privilege of serving as a policy advisor to the Disaster Recovery Coalition of America, www.thedrca.org. And we can put this in the show notes so people can find it. And the Disaster Recovery Coalition of America is about 50 of the largest contractors in the country that come into communities after, before and after a storm, either preaching resiliency or recovery and response. And yesterday we were on a call with FEMA and FEMA wants to make their processes better. I believe it. I know it. I see it. And one of the ways they want to do that is improve communication is to be able to have um, a better uh, discussion particularly with local governments, because they have a process called the FEMA Public Assistance Funding, which is different than individual assistance, which goes to homeowners. Public assistance is what it sounds like. It's it's funding to go to public agencies, cities, counties, school boards, et cetera. And they, they, FEMA, want to make that process better. Should they be more granular? Should they hold workshops? How, you know, you, in Florida alone, we have 423 cities, 67 counties. Um, many of those 32 of our 67 counties are considered 
fiscally constrained, which means they're small. They don't, they're, they're the person, their city manager takes out the trash. Their police chief is probably the fire chief, right? So we've mm-hmm. got to really focus on, you know, the big communities, bless their, they've got resources. They can hire staff. They, they understand resiliency. They're going after, you know, the federal money. But I think FEMA wants to look at strengthening some of the smaller communities um, and giving them the tools that the big communities have to, to get them on par for the next storm. So we want to applaud our FEMA partners. If you don't know who your region FEMA partner is, you should pick up the phone like Tony Robinson is in uh, the whole Texas region six. Mm-hmm other regional administrators throughout the state. If you're on the private sector side and you're with an insurance company, we can get you the name and phone number of the FEMA region director. You should know who they are and continue to build that bridge between property insurance and disaster recovery. Yeah, I, I heard a lot of people that, that, that are even in the, in the public sector, uh, uh, first responder types and those that come into recovery said that even, even they have trouble understanding the, the the hoops they've got to jump through to, to work with FEMA in the in the recovery and resiliency phase. So yeah, anything they can do to improve that would be a, be a plus. One of the uh, discussions yesterday, you'll get a kick out of this. Part of FEMA public assistance funding is you have to satisfy certain environmental historical parameters. And you know, if in, and in Florida we have beautiful historic landmarks. They get hit by hurricanes too. And so you have to be very sensitive to how you're restoring it. And when you're asking for funding to restore it. And some of those uh, benchmarks are very strict. And one of them, one of the discussion uh, folks that were about 35 people on the call said that they wanted to pressure wash an old historic school building. And the FEMA leader said, well, what's the horsepower of the pressure washer? And he said, well, what should it be? And they hemmed and they hawed and they said, no more than four horsepower. And he said, a faucet is 45 horsepower. So we need you to go back and look at that. So just silly little things like that, that could be just made so much better and so much easier. So FEMA's trying, you know, we're all struggling with staff shortages. They are too. We're all trying to find folks that will dig in and be critical thinkers and innovative thinkers. They are too, the federal government is. So we're all in this together, Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and your, your notes that were sent to me is that uh, you, you're, you were obviously involved with Hurricane Michael, that being a similar intensity storm to Hurricane Andrew. Uh, what, uh, what can you share with us that, that, that compares what you learned in Andrew versus what you're learning in Michael? Uh, you know, I reflect on that. In Andrew, I just remember getting on a plane out of Tallahassee with 15 other people from the Department of Insurance, sitting in the lobby of a hotel that had a generator running. And nobody had any, of you know, it was all paper files, right? You had a paper file. Most everyone we talked to, and we set up what were called disaster resource centers, DRC, disaster recovery centers. DRCs, and nobody had in their files their insurance policy. So for us to try to help as insurance experts, they didn't have what we needed to look at to see what their coverage was. And back in those days, this was in Florida, we had about four companies that wrote 90% of all the insurance policies in Florida. And reaching them was difficult because 
the phone lines were down. So you fast forward to Michael. The DRCs, we call them insurance villages. The, uh, the CFO, insurance commissioner of our state, set these insurance villages up. And the insurance companies came with their mobile units. They're called uh, mobile emergency response vehicles, MIRVs. And they set up satellite offices in these MIRVs. And they had electronic communication with the home office. And if someone came to the MIRV and they couldn't find their folder of their policy, it was all done online and you could look at where their coverages were. And they could assign an insurance adjuster. Uh, Mr. Needleman knows that very well. If you get those insurance adjusters out quickly, because if you don't get those out quickly, you're increasing the amount of damage. A delayed claim is a more expensive claim. And so the efficiency that the insurance industry, much like the disaster recovery industry, brings to a disaster is unbelievable. And if we also think about before the storm, Bill, you were talking about catastrophe models. There are several that are governmentally used models. NHC has theirs. Um, I work in the insurance catastrophe model space. There's AIR worldwide, one of four. There's only really four big ones in the world that the big reinsurers look at, et cetera. And AIR, they've got a flood model, a tornado model, a hurricane model. And we didn't have that back in Hurricane Andrew. In fact, these catastrophe models did not come of age until a few years after Hurricane Andrew. And as we know, models are a guess. There's no specificity that, I mean, no certainty, I guess. All they are is a guess, but they are the best guess. And they are very sophisticated at what they do. And I'll give you an example of that. In the United States, we have say 5 million flood insurance policies that are written by the federal government. Now this is flood insurance, not property insurance, two separate policies um, that have been separate for 50 years. And it's because we have a federal flood insurance program. And if you have a federal program, most private insurance companies weren't really interested in writing in that space. Up until about four or five years ago, when the flood insurance models, catastrophe models, started evolving with more sophistication. I made C's in science and statistics, so I'm not going to tell you exactly how these models work, but this the, the level of, of sophistication and in, intelligence of these, a flood model, for example, have given comfort to the private insurance companies now to dip their toe in the water for private flood insurance, moving away from the federal government. So these models are the best we got, and our goal ultimately is to try to unwrap some of that NFIP business, put it in the private sector, make sure it's profitable for an insurance company. You want an insurance company to make a profit so they can pay their claims. I'm trying to unwrap the consumer folks who disagree with me and think that they shouldn't make profits, which is just anathema to me. And these flood insurance models are helping. I'll give you an example. In Florida... Back in 2016-17, we worked with Senator Jeff Brandis, who passed the very first flood insurance law in the country that encouraged private flood insurance, that encouraged private insurance companies to get in this flood insurance base away from the federal government. Right now, in Florida, 35, 40 companies are registered to write flood insurance. 
and my homeowner's insurance policy, I have a flood endorsement, which is an add-on. So I have one policy, flood endorsement and homeowner's policy. I use the same adjuster if the time comes. It's a beautiful model. Those models, that technology is what moved us forward. So you go to Hurricane Michael and the technology there with that Cat 5 versus what happened in 92 with Hurricane Andrew, it's night and day. And we should be grateful to the scientists, the engineers, the meteorologists, the hydrologists that are keeping America on the forefront of catastrophe prediction. Back to you, Bill. Yeah, that's, that's a very inter- – I was not aware that we were that many uh, uh, insurance companies were uh, looking into writing uh, flood insurance. Uh, uh, I always – I ask mine every time it's a review, and they just say, nope, <laughs> they're not doing it. Maybe a Texas thing. I don't really know. But, uh, yeah, I do remember that the, with the National Flood Insurance Program, from the onset, the goal was to – Fill the gap where there was at the time, but the end goal was to eventually turn it turn it all over to the private sector. So, so it's good to see that's coming that way. Uh, Hal, you're you're in this line of work. I'm stealing all the show here. Why don't you ask some questions? I've I've been loving the discussion here. This has been great. I've been learning a lot, Lisa. I, I love your perspective on building better building stronger. I know, for example, there's a nonprofit called Smart Home America. They're helping promote something called a fortified roof. It's really popular in Alabama. In fact, Alabama homeowners have been able to get a $10,000 grant to get a fortified roof. And there are thousands of these roofs that were in place when Hurricane Sally hit South Alabama in 2020. And they found almost all of the fortified roofs did very well in Hurricane Sally. Is a program like that, like fortified, is that talked about in Florida? Are there other programs like that? I mean, what are your thoughts on on a, a program like that? I didn't know if you're familiar with it. I am. The fortified program was birthed with the Institute of Business and Home Safety out of Tampa, Florida. And the leaders at IBHS, in fact, the former NFIP administrator, Roy Wright, runs that program now. A dynamic woman, Julie Rocheman, ran it and and kicked it off many years ago and was the, I don't want to say founder, but I mean, it was her brainchild. And they've got about, I don't know, 35, 40 insurance companies and others on their board. They do amazing work. They have a, a whole lab up in South Carolina. If you've never been to the IBHS lab, um, you should go. You should watch them burn a house, flood a house, put wind on a house. It just, it's fascinating. And then what happens, you know, we call it the tale of two houses, ones that did and ones that did, did not. Um, Florida's building code is the strongest in the nation. So, you know, the fortified uh, parameters, a lot of that's in our building code. Even though our building code is the minimum, a lot of people do what's called code plus. And even if our building code is the minimum, it's stronger than anywhere else. And uh, the Miami code being the strongest in the country. Uh, very proud of that fact. Of course, you can have the building code, but you also have the building official that enforces it. And what we learned in Hurricane Andrew was they had a code, but nobody enforced it. And so I do a lot of work with the Building Officials Association of Florida, maybe your next guest for your radio show. Um, the building officials are what will make the difference between a home that will survive it and won't because it doesn't do any good for me to have a metal roof if it's not installed properly and not signed off on the, by that building official. In Hurricane Michael, when I toured, and what I do after a storm, when it hits Florida particularly, is I get in my little car and I drive to the affected area and I do my best to get past the watchman standing at the, you know, the border gates because they're 
stopping people from looting. I don't really look like a looter. Um, and I go to the locations and I'm knocking door to door. Uh, I have addresses for my insurance companies, making sure that those claimants and homeowners are okay on behalf of such and such insurance company. And what I saw in Hurricane Michael was an entire metal roof lift off the structure and were laying next door on the side in the side yard, strictly from incorrect installation. So when we talk about fortified roofs, it's as much about the roof composition as it is the installation, if that's helpful. Lisa, post-Hurricane Andrew, the building code changed in South Florida, right? But not for the entire state, as far as I understand. And then after Michael, did the code change for the entire state? Were there adjustments in North Florida? Could you kind of walk us through what happened post-Andrew and then what happened post-Michael in Florida for building codes? Great question. Post-Andrew, post absolutely. Major change think tanks, discussions, focus groups, town hall meetings, all of it. Unfortunately, the panhandle has a carve out from the very strict building code provisions that we have in our state. And there's a certain section of the panhandle. If you think about Florida, it's like it goes it like so I'm going to show on my camera. Here's the panhandle from Pensacola to Tallahassee. And then you go down the side of the state. And that's down here. That's my dog, Katie. She's saying hello. Uh, you go down the side of the state, and that particular, um, that's where you get into what we call the Tri-County, Miami, Palm Beach, Broward, right? And so what I would suggest is think about the carve-out in the panhandle, which caused some of the damage in Hurricane Michael because it's not as strong. Then you ask, why a carve-out? Why a carve-out? I guess I can just say politics. Um, some of the officials over there felt like their constituents could not afford to build a fortified home or an extra strong home and answered the call of their constituents and said, we're going to save them money. Very short-sighted. I actually know the senator that put that into effect. Very short-sighted. And um, to this day, that, that code is not as strong as the rest of Florida. So remember, what's rational in business is the opposite in politics. And so that's where we are with the code in the, in the panhandle post-Hurricane Michael. It's still a weaker code. Lisa, another question I have for you, and then we'll uh, hopefully go. Usually we have our viewers uh, text in and email in some questions as well. I'm really curious about this. The last decade, we've seen some big disasters in Florida, Hurricane Irma in 2017, Hurricane Michael in 2018. But you can make an argument that Florida as a whole has been very lucky. There were a lot of near misses, right? Hurricane Matthew kind of mostly stayed off, off the East Coast in 2016. There were some impacts from St. Augustine North, but it could have been a lot worse. Had Irma been, if Hurricane Irma was 100 miles farther east, that could have been putting Cat 3 or Cat 4 winds into Miami. And then in 2019, Category 5 Hurricane Dorian stalling over the Bahamas, what, 140, 150 miles east of West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale. I can't imagine if that thing shifted 150 miles to the west. When we've seen a lot of these near misses, from your experience, does that make people say, wow, I live in a really dangerous neighborhood. My neighbors have been robbed, but I haven't. I need to up my security. Or do you see people saying, hey, you know, we've been lucky. The luck's going to continue and kind of get complacent. What do you think when you see all these big storms that were near misses? How does that affect people's psychology and their interest in insurance? Well, that's a, another great question. In Florida, we have, we've got neighboritis when it comes to, to new roofs. We've got a few roofing companies and trial lawyers, plaintiff lawyers that 
um, and they're not all like this. I've got great friends on both of the roofing and the, and the legal industry. Um, so we have a lot of new roofs in Florida uh, just because people are knocking on doors soliciting new roofs. And it typically should not be paid for by an insurance policy. It's, it's a normal wear and tear. But a lot of times the insurance companies just pay for the roof because it's cheaper than facing a court challenge that it should have a new roof. So we have a lot of new roofs. And so what happens is the neighbors see that this person got a new roof. And I have not done a study. Maybe that's what we'll do with the building officials is look at the increase in roofing permits that have been pulled now versus, say, five years ago. And I think roofs are the are the they're getting replaced. And whether they should be paid for by the insurance company or not is a subject for another show. Um, but it's happening just because you've got roofing solicitors looking for business because of no storms and they're just knocking on roofs. Now, of course, a lot of them inflate the site, the, the, the cost of those roofs. I talked to someone yesterday who said that the roof permit was 18,000. They were charging the um, insurance company 40,000. Pure permit fraud. All that we can talk about on another show, but we have a lot of new roofs in this state paid for legitimately or illegitimately by insurance companies. So just by default and by design, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have a stronger uh, roofing stock when the next storm hits, we hope. Um, I also believe this, it's just like working in the legislature. Unless it happens now, if it happened two months ago, it's old news. And we have had a very quiet storm season. Here we are in the middle of August and, um, Thank goodness for the Sahara dust. Uh, if we make it through, <laughs> I asked my friends at AIR Worldwide, and they may be on your next show as well. Brilliant scientists. Um, you know, if we if we don't have a storm this season, it will be huge for the state because our Florida property insurance market, let me give you a frame of how big it is. We have seven and a half million property insurance policies in Florida. Texas has about 11 to 12 million. California, I think, has about 18 million. Those are just round numbers. Property insurance policies. And about 90% of those, 85% of those are written by Florida-based insurance companies that have between 200,000 and 500,000 policies. Our government's insurance policy, citizens' property insurance, has a million of those policies. And so all those companies buy reinsurance, right? They've insurance to back up insurance companies. And so they're able to weather a storm, but you're right. If you model that proposed Cat 5 or Cat 6, you've heard about the Category 6 storms? You've been following that? If you model those storms and it comes up the guts of Miami all the way up through Tampa, there's no amount of reinsurance or catastrophe funding that's going to save our state. It will be a federal event. So... A lot of us hold our breath. I know hope is not a strategy, but we aren't sure we've got enough money. We have several billion in reserves, but you have a storm like a Cat 6 through Tampa and Miami, all bets are off. Lisa, great perspective there. I do have one last question for you, but first I want to go over to Tim. I know a lot of times we have our viewers send in questions. Tim, do we have anything coming in online? We do have a lot coming in online. So great discussion and, and folks are responding in a big way. So let me ask just a couple of them. One comes from Barry um, and he says, how do you reach the communities, the vulnerable communities who are at the most risk? Uh, in particular, people who live in older manufactured homes and those substandard 1970s mobile homes. How do you how do you reach them? How do you get the word out to what they need to do? 
I grew up in a small town, Plant City, Florida. If you don't know where it is, look it up on a map. It's the winter strawberry capital of the world. And in that town, it was the churches. I re we relied on the pastors. I mean, in Tallahassee, I live in a small town again. If I want to get the word out, I go to the pastors in a community. Because, you know, you say what you want. Oh, people don't go to church anymore. Pastors have a certain level of respect in a community. I don't care if it's Catholic, Baptist, Methodist. I don't care. Whatever your whatever your religion is, if you've got someone that's a leader in a, con in a congregation they are disciples of mitigation and they and, and and resilience and education and you can get the word out through them so i'd love to do a pastor program with y'all in some way shape or form pick 15 communities in the country develop our message and get the word out let's do it and i know that's something barry is working on in particular so it in, in that he lives in the same community i do and and reaching the faith-based communities is, a, is an important thing so thank you for that um peter black's asking um he says i might be, be maybe a bit behind in the times but he wants to know what a metal roof is uh metal roofs have been around for a little while but uh he says he's an andrew survivor and was a damage investigator and a former student of Ted Fujita. So he wants to talk about metal roofs for a second. So I'm going to show you, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in my backyard. Let me step out here and show you a metal roof, They're also called standing seam roofs. Uh, Bill, you probably can talk more about it while I'm doing a real shot. You want to go ahead and talk about the different roof type composition shingles? Want to do that? Uh, yeah, but my yeah, I'm I'm a meteorologist, which means my knowledge, <laughs> my knowledge of construction is is I ask people uh, other people to tell me what it really means. But we actually have that kind of a roof on our on our add-on at our house in New Mexico. Uh, it'll last longer than I will. Uh, they actually uh, the four or five people uh, are are adamant that even with a if you do it right, even uh, the standard shingle, asphalt shingle roofs, they can make them uh, uh, withstand pretty high winds. Uh, the metal roofs intrigue me when, in hail country because uh, hail, hail damage is always a big issue. Well, they, you're right. They say it'll outlast us a lifetime. I made the decision to spend the extra money and get the new roof on, and um, it really has made a big difference. They believe the safety of my home will be much, much better. So... Uh, that's a great question and talk to a reputable roofer and off and off you go we've got uh, another one coming online and then i'll get back to bill and how for their questions but uh, james wants to know what's the best way to navigate the insurance uh degrading that we're seeing now in florida tough question <laughs> um, so that's a i'll try to do it quickly um We've had about a five-year run of what I'll call claim inflation, and that's where someone charges a roofer, knocks on the door and says, you have a $40,000 roof, and we know it should be a $20,000 roof, and that's not illegal. I mean, claim inflation is, but proving it is tough, and so if it's proved, we have us a great case against some roofers. There's only a handful of roofers that are really gaming the system, but the hustle goes like this. You're home and you get a knock on the door and the and the roofer says, Can I knock on your can I get up on your roof? I think you need a new roof. And of course, most people go, sure. You got a roofer at your door. They go on your roof. What do you think they say when they come down from your roof? You need a new roof. We'll submit it to the insurance company. We'll take care of the rest. Does it matter if that roof is normal wear and tear? Well, the thousands and thousands of roofing claims that are coming in that are typically inflated, 
the insurance company says, whoa, 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 we've got a picture of that roof that we took when we wrote that policy, and it's a 20-year shing- It's a 20-year roof. And folks, let's face it, to my roofing manufacturers that are on this program, there ain't no such thing as a 30-year shingle in Florida. I wish you would do change your messaging because when it's a – and there ain't no such thing as a 30-year roof in Texas. I would agree. Would you agree? The heat yeah. and the – you know, it's just no such thing. So I'd love to get in front of a bunch of roofing manufacturers and ask them to change their warranties by state. But, of course, I want straight hair, too. So the insurance company says this is this is a wear and tear on a roof. Why should we be paying this? And, again, they're at a decision point. Pay it or get sued for denying it. So, you know, they have to make a business decision. And over and over and over again, so the insurance companies are increasing the rates. They're just passing all those costs to all of us for all these new roofs and that's draining the surplus of our insurance companies um, to the point where some of them are losing their rating. Some are pulling out of the state and they're tired of just having to roll over. Some of them fight them, fight the cases. But when you have a judge that awards an, awards an attorney, $80,000 for a 20,000, you know, attorney's fees for a $20,000 roof, it's crazy. That's a great subject for another program. How do we reduce insurance fraud and some of the hustle that goes with it? But we, we're, we're praying for no storms this season. That some week we can create an environment to get our insurance companies back. Because right now, it's no fun to be an insurance executive in Florida. Uh, trust me. Great question and a great answer. Let's take a moment and thank our sponsors again. We'll go back to some more questions. But we do want to thank those who make these programs a possibility. USAA and the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Those are the two big guys that have been along from the very beginning of the National Tropical Weather Conference. So we appreciate everything they do to keep these programs going and keep great guests like what we're hearing today on this program. Um, Hal, you said you had another one. And, Bill, I'm sure you've got more. So let's go back to Hal, and then we'll go back to Bill. Hal? Yeah, Lisa, I really ex- appreciate what you explained with insurance fraud. My background is meteorology, climate science. I don't know that much about insurance, but when I go to conferences, I love what you said in the beginning of this broadcast that it really does come back to the people. You know, at the end of the day, there's weather data, there are weather, weather models, but what is the impact on the people? So I do try to keep my ears open when I'm at these hurricane and flood conferences and just hear how people are talking about these storms affecting the people. And something I hear at a lot of these conferences, and I personally don't fully understand it, I'll hear people say, well, Florida is a hard place to write insurance. It's so litigious. There's so many, uh, so so much litigation happens there. And could you explain, are there differences between Florida and other states? Like, could you share a little context of that? I don't fully understand what they're talking about when they say that. But I I know from some people's perception, there's a difference with Florida. Could you kind of explain the context of that or or maybe what your perception of that is on that topic? One statistic from the insurance commissioner will say it all. And I'll give you the letter from the insurance commissioner to the House of Representatives for you to put in your show notes. 80% of all litigation in the country, property insurance litigation, 80% is in Florida. Yet only 8% of all property insurance claims are in Florida. Let that sink in. 80% of all property insurance litigation is filed in Florida, yet only 8% of all property insurance claims are filed in Florida. Does that tell you why there's so much litigation going on in Florida? We have over 100,000 open lawsuits. Every other state has less than 1,000. And it's because our statutory framework allows for a pretty sizable chunk of attorney's fees if you 
Even if you lose, you get paid attorney's fees. We're the only state in the country that has that. And if any of the trial lawyers are listening to this call, hats off to you. You write more campaign checks. You're more politically engaged than ever I've ever seen. And you've been successful at stopping changes to that law. That may be coming because once you start losing insurance companies, it wakes up the politicians that realize they got to do something. You can't continue. It is unsustainable. The litigation of this state is off the charts. It, you know, every day, thousands of lawsuits are being filed, like factories of lawsuits by about 20 law firms causing 90% of the insanity. Can we turn it around? We better. That's all I can say. Lisa, thank you for explaining that. I understand better now. You're saying the environment is, it gives these law firms incentive to keep pursuing this very aggressively. Um, that, that makes sense. Now I think I understand the issue better. And I really appreciate your direct response to these questions. Bill or Tim, do you guys have any any other questions? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the uh, slightly different tack there. I think you mentioned that you, you work a lot with the, uh, the big uh, construction type contractors and whatnot. Uh, you never really hear much as an organization on them on ways to uh, improve the uh, re uh, response and recovery after a storm hit. And, and it seemed like they could weigh in and, uh, and maybe they're trying, I don't know, and, and, uh, and, and help reduce some of the, the noise that goes on with it. I call them locusts. You get a hurricane come in and all these people come in from God knows where and say they're going to fix your roof, take your money, and then they never hear from them again. Uh, what, what, what do they say? What do, they, what, what do you got on, on what they can do for us? Thank you for that, Bill. You know, there's two uh, happenings after a storm. You have the locusts, the hustlers, I call them, that are knocking on doors. You know, they get people to sign contracts, lock people in, take advantage of them when they're most vulnerable. There's a special place in hell for those kind of people, in my humble opinion. Um, that's, that's the ones that are trying to milk the insurance company system. Let me file a claim for you. It won't cost you a thing. I'll only charge you 10% when they figure out a way to inflate the claim and make more than that. It's really a it's very, very disturbing. Then you have the FEMA and, and U.S. Army Corps contractors that are called in to do the big infrastructure projects. And to me, they're doing the Lord's work. I mean, they are, you know, a lot of these, think about debris. Think of the three or four things that you have to have happen to get a could get a community back on its feet after a storm. Jeb Bush, one of the best governors we've ever had, including our current governor, Jeb Bush said, you got to get the schools open. You got to get the, the offices, the work offices open, because if the schools are open, parents can go back to work. You got to get the restaurants open. Okay. And then above all that, you got to get the debris off the street so everybody can get the economy going again. So you've got these debris haulers and they're out there picking up sticks and branches and clearing roads. Those debris haulers that are experts in, you know, they, they typically contract with local truckers. They're big, huge contractors, national contractors, but they understand that you have to use the local talent that have the trucks to haul the stuff to the haul dump site. They don't get paid for four, six, eight months. After that storm, they're fronting those costs for the federal government. And they do it because, A, it's lucrative in most cases. B, it's the right thing to do. They've been, somebody, I said to somebody, why do you do that? He said, because I'm too stupid to do anything else. So, you know, 
those kind of debris haulers and and the big construction companies that come in and rebuild the bridges and they're rebuilding city hall those companies that are members of the disaster recovery coalition of america they are what is rebuilding after a storm they were the ones they were the contractors when you heard the president talk about standing up a COVID hospital in two weeks it's those contractors that are members of the drca disaster recovery coalition of america that put those hospitals up in two days and two weeks they're the ones that got the vaccines on the street they are response experts and they are recovery experts and nobody really knows about them except for the federal government I mean, if I say names like Tidal Basin and WSP and Cone Resnick, you've never heard of these names. They're all on the website, but we owe them a debt of gratitude, not just because I work with that association, but I hear, you know, they, they make, they exercise plans and they work on, they, they, they're big believers in you plan your work and you work your plan pre-disaster. And they preach to local governments, don't wait for a disaster to do a contract, pre-contract. Why would you wait until after disaster to go seek these services? Put people on standby contracts. Hell, it's like being in the insurance business. We have insurance adjusters that we train to be on standby in case of a catastrophe. We put them in a reserve spot to be ready to deploy because the worst thing that can happen is that we delay the response. A delayed response is a more expensive recovery. And if we keep that in mind, we will be much better for it. And if there's anything I can leave this very distinguished group and audience is this. Plan your work, work your plan from a macro standpoint. And people you know come to your back door. People you don't know come to your front door. Don't answer your front door in, after a storm because it is not going to be good news. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, we just had uh, uh, this this spring. We had a, a flurry of uh, I think it was just one company with several people coming <laughs> by and saying, "You need a new roof. You've had a hailstorm here." Of course, they had no idea what my profession is. So, so really, yeah. When was the hailstorm? Uh, uh, where's the date on it? How big were the stones? And, and you get this uh, stunned look in their eye, and then you say, "Go away," and they're gone to the next one. But sure enough, you see some roofs going in. Uh, it's been very informative. I actually picked up a few things I thought I knew that I didn't know, like that insurance companies are now picking up the uh, uh, flood insurance program. I think it's very important uh, news because they make you be able to get very creative to help uh, both the high and low end of the of the market on that. And uh, I didn't. I, I can't believe I wasn't familiar with DRCA. So now I've learned that. Uh, yeah, the DR Disaster Recovery Coalition of America. Um, they are a. It's it's an awesome experience. We had a call with uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, recently. We're we're still talking with them. Uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, if you look at all the federal funding that's coming down, last week we saw a couple of billion dollars coming to fifty states for infrastructure to uh, solidify bridges. And I mean, you should just pull up that list of what states getting what money. It's easy to find. USDOT, uh, Secretary Buttigieg uh, announced that last week. You're constantly seeing money um, coming out of the U.S. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, to clean up algae bloom. Our waterways are a mess. AECOM 
is AECOM is a leader in cleaning up the harmful algal bloom problems we have in our waterways that result from leaking septic tanks, fertilizer runoff, that kind of thing. When a hurricane comes, it swirls up that algae and makes it worse in the water bodies. So we want to try to get ahead of the algae bloom before it blooms. Uh, you know, a lot of the federal response or even state response is very important to keep our waterways clean. You have debris left over from storms because sometimes FEMA doesn't pay for private debris removal out of private water bodies. So you've got, you'll have spillover from that. So really all this is connected. I talk about the intersection between insurance and disaster recovery. All roads lead to insurance. Let's face it. If you insure, if you can, if you can pay the premium, you could insure it. Um, but we all have to think about how does it affect the everyday American, everyday Floridian, everyday whatever state you're in, to educate them and get them engaged. And I, I take it all back to the pastors. Whether you're a member of that parish or parishioner or not, I think they are great disciples and it's an untapped resource that we should tap as a body of experts about how to get the message out. Right. Terrific. <laughs> Terrific program. How do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, a, a last question, Lisa. I love what you shared about these pre-disaster contracts, like for debris removal, things like that. You're you're putting your ducks in a row before the storm even hits. Are there other services besides debris removal that communities should consider getting a pre-disaster contract, maybe with uh, utilities, piping? Or are there other things that communities should be thinking about in that regard? Absolutely, Hal. The more you can plan on the front end, the better on the back end. You could, you know, most communities have a one-on-one -on -one with their utility companies. Seems like that's, you know, that that whole process where the utility companies know when they're going to pull from other communities to, to vulture, depending on the size of the storm. Um, the other pre-contract would be to have an expert on staff to pull down some of the FEMA funding and the HUD funding. Because, as I said, in small communities, you've got the, the police chief being the fire chief. And so if you've got an expert that knows how the, the magic secret sauce to pull down this funding, this grant funding, that's always a great way to preposition yourselves as well. Thank you, Lisa. Really appreciate your insights this morning. Thank you. Great program, Lisa. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back because this has been really fascinating. And I think there's probably a lot more you can tell us about what's going on in your world in disaster recovery. Thank you, Lisa. Happy to be here. Pleasure to do it. Thank you so much. Dr. Hal Needham, thank you for your insight and questions today. And Bill, as always, a uh, great job uh, kind of moderating things. We appreciate that a lot. I want to thank our sponsors once again, USAA, the South Bound Grounding Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, Visit Brownsville, uh, Weatherboy, Black Magic Design, Walmart, the Port of Brownsville, all those folks help make these events a possibility. So thank you for that. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. Um, we're coming up on five years. Can you believe it's been five, five years. years already? And there's going to be a lot to talk about with that. A lot of people in this conversation were right in the middle of that. So uh, that's going to be an exciting program next Wednesday at 10 a.m. So we'll see you next Wednesday. In the meantime, thank everybody for being on the program. Thanks to all the viewers, including Tim Marshall, wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate that. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.